morning, we now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere. We welcome all who are with us here in the gymnasium. For those of you here in the gymnasium, there are sheets over on the side that have the scripture readings printed out on them. We also welcome our listening audience in the greater St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM. And then literally online could be around the world, I suppose, KFUO.org. We welcome all who are joining with us today. As is our custom in this class, we'll take a look at the scripture lessons assigned for next Sunday. So those will be the lessons assigned for Sunday, October 6. Before we begin our study, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings that you shower down upon us each and every day, both in, as individuals and also collectively as your church. But above all, we thank you for the gift of your precious Son and for his life and death and resurrection once again, and that working in our lives through the water and word of baptism, you have called us to faith in your Son, washed away all of our sin, and made us heirs of everlasting life. We thank you also for your life-giving and life-sustaining word and for the opportunity to study it here. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing with us as we study that word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Usually, when we are looking at the three lessons, I say that the Old Testament lesson and the Gospel lesson are usually the two that are connected in terms of a theme or some type of subject that is carried throughout both. And it's only on festival Sundays that the epistle lesson is also tied in. Well, I have to tell you today, I don't know what the tie is <laughs> between the Old Testament lesson and the gospel lesson. This will be, be our task for today. Find the tie between the Old Testament lesson and the gospel lesson. Now, that's not to, that's not to be critical of either lesson, but uh, there are, as I've said before, there are times when the tie is pretty apparent and there are other times where it's pretty obscure. And today, to me at least, uh, falls into the latter category of pretty obscure, all right? But anyway, we'll take a look, first of all, at the Old Testament lesson assigned for next Sunday in Series C. And that is Habakkuk, uh, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And notice we're going to uh, kind of chop up a little bit here. We've got chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 that we'll look at. A uh, couple of things. First of all, we don't know much at all, actually, about Habakkuk. Um, his uh, name means to embrace. And that's about all we know. Is he, is he being embraced by God? Is he embracing God and his word? That certainly seems to be the case, of course. Um, Habakkuk is writing at a time when uh, things are really heading south in a hurry for God's people, the southern kingdom in particular. The northern kingdom has already been wiped out and, and uh, literally destroyed, judged by God through the Assyrians, and we are quickly approaching the time when the southern kingdom is going to be laid waste by the Babylonians, whom God is raising up. And so we think that um, uh, we're right around six, we're, we're in the reign of a king named Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and he is the son 
of one of the best kings in, in the uh, southern kingdom, King Josiah. King Josiah reigned and brought about, tore down a lot of the false gods, shrines, and places of worship, restored the word of God by and large to the people and to their practice. And lo and behold, as happens there are a number of times in the Old Testament, you get this great king, and you're thinking, okay, from here on, things are going to be in great shape, and God's people are going to turn back, and things are going to be just doing much, much better. Not the case. Jehoiakim was one of the worst. And you know, it's kind of, we see this happen, don't we? We see this happen today, that you have uh, parents who are just stellar in terms of their, their faith and they're raising their children in the faith and so on. And you see later on in life, unfortunately, uh, sometimes, uh, children turn and are just the opposite, aren't they? And we got to say, there are times where you see the opposite too, don't you? You see God working. You see parents who are not at all involved with their children in terms of living out the faith and practicing of the Christian faith. And lo and behold, down the line, God gets to that child, maybe through a friend or through others. And we see, we see that child, you know, uh, being called by God to faith and trusting uh, in Jesus Christ. So this is unfortunately one of those examples that goes in a negative direction. And um, we're going to see with Habakkuk here his complaining about rampant evil and total injustice. Amongst, now again, remember, this is amongst God's people. This isn't the foreign nations. This is amongst God's own people. And um, the, it, it seemed like the word of God had no standing, had no place in their lives anymore and there have been comparisons made i don't think we're quite there yet in this country uh but there have been comparisons made about how the the sort of the the judeo-christian ethic in our country is just slipping by the wayside and things that that once were uh clearly understood by all to be not according to the will of god are now somehow uh, just accepted and you know, it's, uh, it's your truth and your truth and your truth instead of what God's word has to say. Um, basically, um, Jehoiakim, I'm just going to put this rather, uh, rather bluntly, um, he, was, he has been called a godless tyrant. He uh, had an incestuous relationship with his mother, with his daughter-in-law, with his stepmother, he would actually murder men and then take their property and violate their wives, to put it mildly. Okay? So this is what a nice guy we're dealing with here as God's king. He does get carted off to Babylon once, and we think that was when Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were carted off to Babylon around, six, around 609, 605, somewhere in there. And then he comes back, they let him come back, but only if he is a vassal for Babylon and pays tribute to them and, you know, basically makes Judah a, a southern, a, a, you might say a sub-state of Babylon. And then finally he, he gets a bright idea, he's not going to do that anymore. And that was his demise after that. They just came, carted him off, and there are different reports about how he died, uh, none of them very good, unfortunately. So uh, this is the time now that Habakkuk is prophesying during this uh, terribly godless time 
for God's people. And I mentioned we, uh, Jehoiakim was from uh, 609 to 598 B.C., and remember, it's 586 B.C. when Babylon is going to just completely decimate Judah, Jerusalem, and cart the people off. So we're getting very close to that time uh, when Habakkuk is prophesying. All right? So with that as background, let's take a look, starting at verse 1. Uh, we'll just take, a, let's take that first section, 1, 1 through 4, and then go back and kind of take it apart. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw... O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So he's literally here. He, first of all, he gets an oracle. That word can be translated a burden. God places a burden on him, and we can see that from his message. The burden is all this sin and evil that's all around him, and he has, he's trying to speak out against it. And so there's a burden placed on him. And notice there, it's, it's an oracle, not only, not only auditory that he heard, but notice at the end of verse 1, he also saw this. So apparently there is some visual aspect and auditory aspect to this oracle that he received from God. Now notice in verse 2, who's he addressing? He's addressing God. And he's not too happy with God, you know. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Now, it's not necessarily that God isn't hearing, but as far as Habakkuk is concerned, God is not responding. God is sitting idly by. When all this evil is so rampant, God, why, you know, why are you uh, allowing this to happen? Okay? Now, let me ask you this. Is it okay to have a discussion like this with God? Is it okay in your prayers, for example, to say, Lord, why are you letting this happen? Why are you sitting idly by? And not only, not only talking about uh, evil in the world, but, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a work-related, a career or vocation-related thing. Uh, maybe it's a relationship thing, and you've been going and going and going before God in prayer, and God seems not to be hearing. Now, of course, we know he does hear, but he's not answering. He's not, he's not answering in the way we want him to answer, is the correct way, I guess, to say that. Is it okay to have, you might say, a spirited discussion with God, small s, uh, when it comes to something like this in our life? What do you think? Yeah, most of you are nodding your heads yes. And, and I would agree I think in many ways that is, the, that is a sign of a strong relationship, isn't it, with God. And when you look at the Psalms in particular, boy, oh boy, so, uh, there are a great number of them where the psalmist, either David or another psalmist, is crying out to God, in effect saying a lot of the same thing. How long will you wait, you know? And uh, how, my, uh, why are you allowing my enemies to, to triumph over me, you know? And so there is this, uh, you might, I don't say complaining, but there, it, I guess it is, uh, this, this sort of complaining to God. Now, we, we want to be careful here because 
I, again, I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think having that kind of a, a robust discussion with God can be a good thing. However, we, in the end, what do we have to finally say? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And we don't want to cross that line and, and go, you know, go, over, uh, you know, go over into unbelief or, or uh, you know, something, something terrible like that. But again, here is a prophet of God, a man of God, who is having that kind of discussion with God. He is saying, I'm on your side here, Lord, and why are you letting this go? Why are you not responding? God's going to have an answer for him coming up, and he's not going to like that answer either, but God's going to give him an answer coming up. All right, so uh, uh, verse 2, um, oh, uh, so why, why, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence? So he's calling out to God, the violence here. Don't you see the violence? Even that, that uh, perpetrated by Jehoiakim himself. By the way, you know what the, the uh, Hebrew word for violence is? You've heard it before. Hamas. Okay, so you know the group over in uh, Palestine. Uh, Hamas. Hamas is the, is the word for violence. So I or cry to you Hamas and you will not save. And here's another little Hebrew lesson. The word for save is shuv. And so we get yeshuva from there. Or Jesus comes from that same root. Okay? So I cry violence and you will not save. Why do you make me see sin or iniquity, wickedness, and why do you idly look at wrong? So again, God seems to be tolerating this, standing by and just watching all this happen and seems to be not concerned in the least. Why do I have to see all this, Lord? Okay? And destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So basically, the wicked are having their way here. And, and uh, the prophet Habakkuk is saying, Lord, why are you letting this happen? Okay? And again, in a very spirited discussion. Verse 4, the law, the Torah, is paralyzed. You get the sense that the, the word of God has absolutely no impact whatsoever on these people's lives anymore. It's like it's paralyzed. It can't, it can't act. And uh, instead of being a living and breathing word, it's like it's paralyzed. It has absolutely no effect. And justice never goes forth. Okay? So you can just see here the social structure is not working. There is great injustice toward so many people violence towards so many people. God's word has no authority, it seems, with the people whatsoever. The wicked, you get the next one there, the wicked surround the righteous. So you get the idea that the righteous, those who are righteous, who are left, are being intimidated and being perhaps even attacked by the wicked. And so justice goes forth perverted or twisted, we might say. Okay, uh, Think of things like uh, judges taking bribes, you know, and and just the, the worst sort of corruption and uh, and uh, crooked uh, leaders, including Jehoiakim himself. So I hope I've painted the picture here for you. This was not a good time, okay? Now, we cut out the part, or the lectionary cuts out the part where God 
responds and in effect says, I am going to take action. And he says, and actually it's in verse, uh, it's just two more verses down in verse 6 of chapter 1. Uh, for those of you that have a Bible, he says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. Well, who are the Chaldeans? It's just another name for Babylon. And he says, he, God calls them by name here. He calls his shot, you might say. He's going to raise up the Chaldeans, and they are going to come and execute his justice. Isn't it ironic that God has to call upon a wicked, pagan country, both in the case of Assyria and Babylon, to act as his agent to bring judgment on his own people? So instead of calling on his own people, he has to raise up, and here's another, uh, I guess, another lesson in this, that God is in charge of history. He is the God of all nations, all leaders, and he uses world events for his ends. And we don't want to forget that. And that's exactly what he is doing here. He is going to bring about judgment on his people, but he is going to save a faithful remnant of them they will eventually return from Babylon, uh, starting in 538 B.C., and will start rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple. And at any rate, from that faithful remnant, he will keep his promise of Genesis 3.15 to send one who will crush the head of Satan. And that, of course, will be Christ, who will be coming through the line of David, through that faithful remnant that remains. All right? Now, let's take a look at his second, uh, another complaint that he has here. Starting at 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me or through me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Okay? So starting off at verse 1 there in chapter 2, you might say Habakkuk is saying, I'm going I'm to take my position here, Lord, and I'm going to wait for you to answer me. I'm going to wait for your answer. He says there he's going up on his watch post and on the tower. So it's another way of saying he's going to be on the lookout here for God's answer. He's made this complaint about all the wickedness and why is God sitting around. He's going to now sit on, you know, be ready for God's response. And so God says... Uh, the, then he says in verse 2, the Lord answered me, write the vision, this vision that he gets, make it, notice there, make it plain on tablets. Now, where have we seen tablets before in the Old Testament? Moses, Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, yeah. And, and it's on actual stone tablets. And why do you think they, God would write that on stone instead of just on some wood or on some other material? Endurance, yeah, long-lasting, exactly. And uh, so the same thing is being uh, at least implied here, that this vision is going to be so important that don't just write it on wood, write it on stone. 
We think the prophets did write on wood, quite frankly, at times. But notice here, God is very specific, write it on stone. And the idea, so he may run who reads it. Now, I know at first blush you may think someone's going to read this vision on the stone and run away from it in fear. And that could be one interpretation. However, what they used to do in the Old Testament is they would actually have prophets who would literally run from place to place and would speak the word of God when they got to the next place. And the idea was that if it's in stone, again, it's going to stand up a lot better. It's going to be more permanent so that when they're running from place to place, it will be still intact and they'll be able to read it. So I, I acknowledge you could go either way. You could say whoever reads it on stone is going to be so terrified they're going to run away from it, you know, as if they can avoid it. Or secondly, and this is the one that's favored by most, I think, that it'll be so permanent that when they run from place to place with it, it's going to endure. And in other words, it will be able to be spread throughout all of Judah, this message of judgment that is coming. Okay? Um, verse 3. Still the vision awaits its appointed time. Now what do we compare this to? God says judgment is going to come, but if it seems slow, wait for it. There is an appointed time. It is going to come. What might we compare that to today? Anybody think of it? What might we compare that to today? There's an appointed time or day. It seems like it's coming slowly, but wait for it. Yeah, the second coming, Christ's return, the last day, whatever terminology you want to use to describe it. I mean, um, you know, Christ even saying, you know, I, to his disciples, you know, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and will take you to be with me that where I am there you may be also, right? And there's, there seems to be evidence in the New Testament church that they were expecting Christ to return pretty soon. Not, not, not in terms of even, even decades, but sooner than that. In fact, in the city of Thessalonica, they started asking the questions, you know, where is Christ? We thought he was going to return. And what's ha what about all the people who have died, all the Christians who have died? What about them? He's not back yet. What, what's happening with them? And that's where we get that, that excellent uh, uh, reading in 1 Thessalonians 4 about uh, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep or to grieve as those who have no hope. And then he goes on to talk about what's going to happen on the last day. It is the same with us, isn't it, today? There is an appointed day that has been set. It is known to the Father when it will be. We don't know when that day will be. Why do you think, or we don't even have to think, why does Scripture say that God is, um, I don't want to say delaying, but is, is uh, waiting, you might say? The answer is in Scripture. Why, why hasn't God come imme almost immediately? Yeah, others can hear the word, and he, again, remember, wants none to perish, but everyone to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so he his, you might say it's a gracious or a grace-filled delaying. And, you know, history is full of people trying to speculate as to what day, hour. We've, we just had a, another couple of those a few years ago. 
And uh, as soon as somebody tells you that they, they, this is the day it's going to don't, don't even give it any thought. Uh, it's just not, not, as I say, down through the ages, history, we've always been trying to pinpoint the date. And with good reason, God has not revealed when that day will be. That we are to live every day as it might be the day that Christ is returning, right? And not put off uh, what God would have us do. And so with good reason, that day has been appointed. And you could almost say these words could be applied to us today, right? If it seems like it's delaying, wait for it. It will come, okay? And, of course, we know, unfortunately, that uh, for, for God's people here, it's going to primarily be a day of judgment back in Jehoiakim's day and, and after him, actually, uh, primarily a day of judgment for uh, those of us who wait for the second coming of Christ today. It will be both wonderful news and terrible news, won't it, uh, depending on which side of Christ you are on, whether you are in Christ or not. And so, again, we as a church want to do everything we can as God's people to get that word about God's grace and mercy and love through Christ out to people so that they might hear that good news, receive it, believe, and be uh, eternal uh, heirs of eternal life right along with us. Okay? So it, it, when you read it, it almost sounds like you know, it's talking about the day back then, but we read that and think, boy, the same applies to the second coming. God's, God's coming in Christ the second time. Okay? Uh, it hastens, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Now, verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. Now, who's the his? Who's, who's it referring to there? There's a couple possibilities. One is just that it's any, any uh, guy who is conceited and puffed up with pride, like a lot of, the, lot of the God's people were at that time. So just an unnamed, uh, you know, using as an example for all people kind of guy. The other uh, speculation is it might be even the Babylonian king who is puffed up with pride and is going to be used by God to bring about his judgment. But notice there, whoever it is, uh, the contrast is the righteous shall live by his faith. And so again, we get the idea that there are still righteous people sprinkled in amongst the, the people at that time in Judah. And notice there, how are they going to live? By their faith, you know? Uh, you go all the way back to Genesis 18, I guess 18, 15, that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him or counted to him as righteousness. That's the way it's always been. Faith in God and in the Old Testament, in the Savior to come, the promise of the Savior to come. New Testament, faith in God and the Savior who has already come. And notice that's how we are made righteous. Nothing has changed throughout the scriptures. And of course, we know that this verse is quoted in Romans 1.17. Paul makes use of this same verse, uh, talking about, again, how we are saved, how we are declared to be righteous in the sight of God, not by works of the law, but by faith. Okay? And... Uh, Paul puts maybe a little different spin on it, but not, not much, just maybe a hair different. He's talking in a different context, obviously, than Habakkuk is, all right? But again, notice it is faith 
that makes us righteous and we live through faith, not works. So again, nothing has changed. And it is good news to see that there are still some righteous people uh, alive at that time. I didn't want to paint the picture that you know, there are, there's nobody who is, who is still faithful, but boy, by and large, things were not good. It was not good, a good time to be a child of God at that time. Okay? All right, let me stop here and see, are there any questions, any comments on the reading for next week from Habakkuk? Anything? All right, let's go, I'm going to just go, uh, let's go, well, let's go to the gospel lesson and see, we'll, we'll go from one to the other, and you see if you can find a connection here, or if we can find a connection here. And so we're in Luke 17, verses 1 through 10. And remember here, just context again, that we are still, Christ is still traveling toward Jerusalem, where he knows what is going to happen, namely his crucifixion and death and resurrection, just as he predicted. That, that traveling started in Luke 9, 51, where he, Luke says he set his face toward Jerusalem. So we've been following along here as he's been traveling uh, for the last time on his way to Jerusalem, okay? So let's take a look here, starting at verse 1. And he, this would be Jesus, said to his disciples... And we think this is probably more than just the 12. Uh, did it include the 72 whom he sent out? We don't know how many for sure. But it seems like it might be more than just the 12 at this point, using the term a little bit more loosely. Uh, so here's what he says. Temptations, or you can, you can translate that word stumbling blocks. Temptations or stumbling blocks. Uh, the, the Greek word is scandalon, so it's something that's scandalous you, okay? Temptations or stumbling blocks to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So let's go back and talk about that for a moment. Notice how seriously Jesus takes not only sin, but anyone who causes someone else to sin. And again, um, I'm not sure we take sin quite as seriously today as Jesus did when he walked this earth. And notice he says there that uh, the temptations or the stomach blocks, they're sure to come. In other words, in this world, we are going to face it. We face it every day, don't we? I mean, you can hardly turn on the TV or, uh, you know, go out in the public and you're not seeing temptation around you or stumbling blocks to sin. It's, it's just around us all the time. So he's saying that expect them. They're going to be there. He's not naive, right? But notice, though, woe. And, and when Jesus says woe, that is serious. In other words, you're in big trouble. Woe to the one through whom they come. Now, a millstone, um, we saw a millstone, we saw some millstones uh, when uh, Ann and I, I'm not sure, oh yeah, you guys were with us too, in, in Capernaum last year, and the millstone was used to grind grain up, and it was sort of a cone-shaped, uh, like, almost like cement, stone, well, it was when cement, it was stone, and it would go into a hewn-out 
uh, block. They would put the grain in there and then move the stone back and forth, and it had tremendous weight. So it would, you know, crush the grain, thrash the grain, basically, is what they were doing, getting it ready to, to prepare for, for making bread. I wish we had a screen here. I would have brought my pictures from last year and showed you these things. And uh, so the idea was it was very heavy, okay? It was like an, an anchor. It was so heavy. And so notice there Jesus is saying that for the one who leads people to sin, it would be better that they had a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. And obviously what's going to happen to them? They're going to drown, right? They're going to sink to the bottom and they're going to drown. So again, notice how seriously he takes sin here. Uh, then to cause one of these little ones. Now there's been a whole lot written here. Is Jesus referring just to children here? There's no other mention of children around this. And so there are some people who say, well, maybe there were some children and we just didn't hear about them. And he's pointing to them then would cause one of these little ones to uh, sin or to, um, uh, yeah, to sin. Um, the other thing is he's just using little ones to mean all of his children, any child of God, cause any of them to sin, okay? And so again, he's taking this very seriously. The person who causes others to stumble, okay? Now, how would somebody today cause a person to stumble in their faith? Can you think of any ways that they might cause someone to stumble in their faith? Or be a scandal to them? Anybody got an answer? Yes, that's the first one that I thought of. False teaching. False teaching. And what's wrong with that? Because you are leading people away from the truth of God's word, right? And we've got a lot of that going on in our nation, don't we? Have you heard of what's called, uh, this is one example that comes to mind, but have you heard of what's called the prosperity gospel today? Where God, uh, the, the preachers uh, of this kind of, of teaching say that there's no question, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and to be, you know, have a, a Rolls Royce and a huge mansion and everything. And uh, if you don't, guess whose fault it is? It's your own fault. You don't have enough faith. You're not praying hard enough. You're not this, you're not that. Okay? And we would say, well, wait a minute. Where is Christ? Where is the gospel? Where is the forgiveness of sin? Where is eternal life? It's all focused on a sort of this worldly be the be live the best life you can, be as prosperous as you can kind of approach. And we would say that is leading people away from. It's not leading people to Christ. It's leading people away, okay? So that, that would be one example. That's the first one that came to my mind as well. Any sort of false teaching. And history, unfortunately, has been filled with false teaching in the perverting of the Word of God. It was even happening back in Bible times in some of the cities uh, around that time, you know. Uh, can you be a Christian without keeping all the Jewish laws? There were some called the Judaizers who said, oh no, you gotta keep all the laws, all the dietary laws, gotta keep all those. Can't, if you're gonna be a true blood Christian, you gotta do all that. And again, no. That the keeping of the laws 
is not the way to salvation. And ever since then, yes? Oh. Excellent. Yes. Thanks, Danny. Yeah. There's another good one. And for those of you that didn't hear at home, uh, the idea of, uh, of almost putting up on a pedestal, you might say, social justice and social action to the detriment of and to the diminishing, I guess you would say, again, of Christ and the gospel and the way to eternal life. And that, uh, you know, you get the impression from some churches perhaps that that's the reason the church exists, is to battle injustice in the world. And, it's, and we would say, well, no, it's not that we are, are insensitive to injustice, but the main mission, what did, what did Christ, what's the great commission he gave to the disciples? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, again, I don't want to be callous and say that we aren't concerned. Uh, we had an excellent sermon uh, here this morning from, Pastor, uh, from Reverend Siva King on uh, the rich man and Lazarus talking about, again, the poor and the needy amongst, amongst us that are in our midst. And how, again, it's not that we uh, pass them by as the rich man did in, in uh, rich, the, the uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But again, we would not see that as the main mission of the church. In other words, it's not an either-or. It's a both-and. And we want to make sure that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we are all about. We're focused on that. And then even remember, uh, in um, Luke 15, uh, he says, you know, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. And that includes then. Uh, not only the gospel, but helping the poor and the needy around us as well. Okay? So excellent point. Excellent point. All right? So those are just some of the ways. We as Christians, of course, want to make sure that we don't provide a stumbling block to others, right? And, and it may be something that we, um, you know, do or fail to do, you know? We don't, we don't, see, we don't recognize somebody, so we don't greet them, and all of a sudden they're upset or... You know, I mean, the list could go on and on, and uh, many times unintentionally. And, uh, of course, for that, we ask forgiveness, that, we, you know, we didn't intend that to happen. And we, we try not to ourselves. In fact, we want to be just the opposite, don't we? We want to be uh, uh, the agent through which God works to, to bring people, to attract people to the Christian faith, to, to want to ask the question about your God and so on and not repel them away, okay? So our, uh, you know, as, as Christ said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And that's what we want to do. Let our light shine, all right? So, uh, again, these little ones uh, probably are just, in, in, in a general sense, any child of God. Next one here, verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves. <laughs> now, why do you think Jesus says to his disciples, pay attention to yourselves? What is our human tendency to pay attention to? Well, yeah, but when it comes to pointing out sin, let's put it that way. When it comes to pointing out sin, where is our attention usually on ourselves? Oh, it's the other guy, you know? There's that old uh, joke, chief of sinners, though I be, I'm not near as bad as the guy sitting next to me, right? 
And so, and, or where Jesus said, you know, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, right? So I think it's not without its cause here that Jesus says to his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. You know, look at yourselves. Not, not, not prioritize yourself, but your own spiritual condition, okay? If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, what does it mean to rebuke somebody? Chastise? Maybe correct? Set the record straight? You know, however you want to translate that. Got the idea, I think. So rebuke him. And if he repents, what? Forgive him. Now let me ask you this. What does it mean to forgive someone? You know that old expression that we hear, forgive and forget. Now, so if I can remember that somebody did something to me, does that mean I haven't really forgiven them? No, not necessarily at all. We may never be able to erase from our mind the, the memory of what occurred, what was said, or what was done. However, it's how we remember it, isn't it? Do we remember it with anger and vengeance and wanting to get even, if, if not more than even with them? If that's the case, then we probably haven't really truly forgiven, have we? So I, don't be burdened or guilt-ridden, first of all, if you can still remember what happened. Uh, that's, you're probably going to remember. But again, it's how do you remember it, okay? One of the words, and it's not used a lot in the New Testament for forgive, means to let something pass you by. So when you forgive someone, you are letting feelings of anger and bitterness and vengeance pass you by. You're not inviting them in and harboring them and giving them a place to thrive. You're letting them pass you by. And that's what we really mean by forgive, right? And it is inevitable, isn't it, that we are going to have to forgive people at times. Again, just like temptation is inevitable, it's inevitable that we as living together, even in the church, as saints and sinners, there are going to be times when we're going to have to forgive. And Jesus here goes on, look at verse 4. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In other words, you will forgive. Now, seven times a day, that's, that's quite a bit, right? <laughs> I think that's even more than I do. Uh, but... Uh, uh, seven, so in other words, and he's not, he's not saying this to sort of tick off, well, seven's the limit, and you know, if it gets to eight, then don't worry anymore. He's, he's actually just implying every time. In other words, seven times seems like a lot, right? That he's going to sin, come back to you, you know, after a while you think, okay. But the point here is every time there's a sin committed against you and a person repents and asks for forgiveness, you forgive them. Why is that the case, that Christians forgive other people, even non-Christians? Why is that the case? Because we have been forgiven so much, haven't we? We know how much we've been forgiven. And there is that, we don't have time to get into it now, but remember there is that parable about the, uh, the one uh, steward who 
uh, his master forgives him an incredible amount, more than he could ever hope to pay. And then he goes out from there and finds somebody who owes him just a tiny bit and refuses to forgive the debt until the last little bit is paid. And Jesus rails in that, you know, that parable against that kind of attitude toward others. So we forgive. And I know it is not easy, is it, sometimes? It is not easy. Especially if, you know, there, there are, I don't know about you, but for me, it's a lot easier to forgive something that I think was done unintentionally for me. In other words, they, they didn't realize either what they were doing or the impact that it would have or the result that would occur. That's one thing. But when it, it sure looks like it was an intentional act to harm or to hurt, those are the most challenging ones to forgive, aren't they? Those are the ones that kind of really stick and, and really, you know, can get your blood boiling. And again, notice Jesus isn't differentiating here. It's just when they sin against you and repent, forgive, okay? And so um, you think of, we are only two chapters past Luke 15 where we have the parable of the prodigal son. And it really, I think, should be called the parable of the gracious and forgiving father who remember what his son did. And his son is coming back home, and the father sees him a distance off and runs out to embrace him and won't even let his son finish his confession, throws his arms around him and orders that the, you know, the bank would take place, that the best of clothes be brought out and the fattened calf be killed and so on. That was the whole point of that parable, of a forgiving and gracious father. And, and that's the God we have who has forgiven us so much and then simply asks us to forgive others as they sin against us. And could there be a tie here between these two things? Between failing to forgive someone and setting up a stumbling block for someone. You see the connection there? If we as Christians fail to forgive someone, couldn't that be a stumbling block in their life? Oh, you're a Christian, you say you're a Christian, and you're not forgiving me? Huh. And, you know, so it might not be just, just casually that these two things are put together here. Certainly failing to forgive someone and holding a grudge and uh, des uh, designing to get even can certainly be a stumbling block and a very visible uh, one uh, for other people around us, right? All right, you must forgive. Now, going on, verse 5, the apostles. Now, here we think it, it is kind of down to the, to the 12 who are apostles, the idea of the 12 disciples or 12 uh, apostles. They said, Lord, increase our faith. Now, why do you think these disciples, what do you think that, why was that the first response out of their mouth after Jesus says all this? Lord, increase our faith. Yeah, because this is so hard, you get the impression, I don't know if we can do this, Lord. Increase our faith. Give us more faith so we can actually do what you've just asked us to do, this forgiving all the time, this not putting a stumbling block before anyone, this, this uh, not causing anyone to sin. Help us increase our faith. 
And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And there's a lot of different interpretations of this uh, statement by Jesus. We think probably one of the best is that it's, again, the great uh, power of faith. That fa the great things faith can do in a, in, a, in a person. In other words, if you had just a little faith, you'd be able to do exactly what I've asked you to do. Uh, the mulberry tree was one that had real deep roots and really was hard to bring up, you know. I've had uh, times where I've been digging out a shrub, you know, and, and in the yard, and oh man, I'm chopping and chopping and chopping with an ax to try and cut those roots, and they just go down, and you're trying to pull it out, and it's just really hard. That's what a mulberry tree was like. And Jesus said that even a small amount of faith, like a mustard seed, so a mustard seed is very, very small, of course, and just that amount of faith can produce a great result like that. In other words, he's saying faith can do great things, including what I've asked you to do, right? Now, the next one is kind of, I don't know, this... When you read this, let's read it through, and you, you see how you, how you take this. Uh, I'm going to read the whole thing, 7 through 10. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So, all, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So I don't know about you, but let's, let's read this through. The, the first one is a question that expects a negative answer. Which one of you who has a servant out in the field plowing, and a servant gets done plowing, says to him, hey, come on in, recline at the table, have a seat, eat? No is the expected answer, you'll tell that servant, get up, prepare dinner, serve me, dress appropriately, that's your role, okay? And so Jesus is saying the same thing to his disciples. What is your role? It's as a servant, okay? And so when all is said and done, you say, we are, say, merely unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. And I can kind of seem a little... I don't know, uh, what should I say, what's the right word here? Uh, not callous or coarse, or maybe a little bit. But Jesus is kind of, you know, almost putting them, letting them know what their role is. And that's our role too, isn't it? We are but servants. And when all is said and done, we send, we're not expecting any grandiose, you know, uh, 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 ticker tape parade. We're merely doing what is our, our assigned role as servants. And so that's what Jesus is getting across uh, to his disciples here, okay? All right, so there's the gospel lesson. Uh, again, I don't see a whole lot of connection unless you're talking about the stumbling of God's people in the Old Testament and who caused them to stumble. But to me, there's not a clear, strong connection between the Old Testament and the gospel lesson, at least not next Sunday, okay? All right, let me stop there in the gospel lesson. We're going to go real quickly to the epistle and kind of fly through it. But uh, are there any 
questions or comments just on the gospel lesson. Yes. Yes. That's an excellent point. When we, uh, in our human flesh, find it challenging or maybe we just can't forgive yet, we go to God in prayer and ask him to give us that ability to do that. That's a great point. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. All right, good question. Okay, they've sinned against you, and Jesus is premising the forgiveness on if they repent. All right, now what if they don't repent? What should we as Christians do? Get back at them because they, they didn't repent? No. Remember what Jesus said we're to do for our enemies? Pray for them who persecute you, right? So even if they don't repent, it's not like, well, you didn't repent, so now I get to hate you as a Christian, right? No. Uh, we uh, love all, and we pray even for those who persecute you. And boy, that's hard, isn't it? If they maintain that they were in the right and you're wrong, and that really becomes difficult. And again, uh, that's where prayer, prayer is going to be needed again, right? That's a great question. We didn't say the other side. What if they don't repent? Well, uh, again, pray for them. Pray, And not only for them, uh, obviously not that something bad happens to them. We don't pray for that. We pray for a reconciliation too, right? That th there might be a reconciliation. And we might even add in that prayer that for any part I played in this disagreement or this whatever it is that happened, I repent of that. That, that's, that can be a real powerful thing to say to that person before they even say anything, right? For any part of this that I had uh, hurt you or wronged you, I am sorry, and I hope you forgive me. Okay? Yeah, that, that could break down a lot of barriers. That's exactly right. Okay? And that is the Christ-like thing to do, right? All right, any other comments or questions? <laughs> We're almost out of time. How do we do that? Must have been talking too much. Uh, let's go to uh, the uh, second uh, lesson, 2 Timothy 1, 1 to 14. We think this is Paul's last letter that he wrote. Uh, he was, uh, by accounts outside of the Bible, uh, we believe he was executed uh, in 68 AD in the spring of the year outside of Rome. Uh, about the same time Peter was, and not far from that same place. And you almost can read between the lines uh, when Paul is writing here to Timothy in 2 Timothy that he's kind of feeling that this is going to be it. And again, for no other reason than his proclaiming the gospel. No other reason. So Paul, starting at verse 1, we're in, we're in 2 Timothy 1, starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle... Now, an apostle is somebody who is sent out with authority by someone else, speaks for them. Uh, so if uh, an apostle comes, it's just as if the, the one who sent him is there and has authority. Notice here, he's an apostle of Christ. Now, when did Christ send Paul out? Remember, Paul used to be Saul, he was persecuting the Christian church on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 to uh, gather up some Christians and bring them back for trial. And remember, it was on that road that the risen Christ appeared to him 
And that's where he became an apostle, one sent with the authority now of Christ and by Christ. And so he is the last of the apostles, okay? By the will of God, so again, it wasn't his idea, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And that, of course, is the promise of the eternal life that is ours in Jesus Christ. And so this is the way they started letters. They would always start the letter in New Testament times telling you who's writing. Then it would be to whom? So to Timothy, my beloved child. And uh, Timothy, Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey. He was, we think, a pretty young uh, guy at that point. He had a Jewish mother and a, um, a Gentile, or Greek, or Gentile, uh, father. And boy, from that time on, Paul and Timothy were like peas and carrots. They were just together all the time. Uh, Paul, in fact, and I don't know how I should have looked this up, in any number of his letters, he says Paul and Timothy, you know, to the church in. I think Philippians starts that way. There's a number of them that start that way. And, um, and, and uh, also in uh, uh, Philippians 1, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. So they were extremely close. And uh, so he says, uh, Timothy, my beloved child, you can just feel the, the um, uh, affection there, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. So he's pointing back to his faithful ancestors with a clear conscience. Notice how Paul can say he's got a clear conscience now, and that's only through Christ, after he realized that he was on the opposite side of God for, for quite some time in his life. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, well, when did Timothy shed tears? We think it might have been when he and Paul parted ways because Paul assigned Timothy to go to Ephesus and kind of watch over the church in Ephesus. And that may have been the time that they parted with tears, not in any bitterness, but just in, you know, again, like when a loved one leaves. There might be tears of missing them. Um, that I may be filled with joy. Verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells as, in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, probably at his ordination or his setting apart for this special work. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Just a couple things real quickly here. You know, this is a great Mother's Day text. You know, the faith that first dwelt in your, in your grandmother, uh, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now dwells in you. You can just see that's the way the faith, that's the way it is supposed to work. That that Christian faith is passed on from generation to generation, even within the household. Okay? Then one final thing. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that Timothy was quite timid and kind of backward. And so Paul says there, notice in verse 7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and uh, love and self-control. And look at how verse 8 starts out. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony. Uh, another another uh, portion, Paul says, don't let anyone be critical of you because of your youth. And so we think Timothy might have been a little shy, a little introvert, a little backward. And Paul's trying to get him to you know, come out of his shell a little bit here and be bold. 
Okay? All right. Well, before they get mad at me at KFUO, uh, it's 1029, so I, we better sign off, and let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Amen.